1: New Hampshire has been the proving ground for presidential hopefuls with most spending major time and money in the Granite State. But 2024 Republican presidential candidates so far are bypassing New Hampshire on their way to Iowa. Plus, Republican Senator Mitt Romney announced he will retire at the end of his term, saying it's time for a new generation of leaders. The former Massachusetts governor's remarks re-energized the debate about the age of elected officials. And it's officially business casual dress in the U.S. Senate. A new dress code means one Democratic senator officially ditched his suit and tie for a hoodie. That and more during our full hour with the Mass Politics Profs. Joining me, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston. Hello, Aaron.
0: Thrilled to be here.
1: Gerald Duquette, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Public Policy and Management Program at Central Connecticut State University. Hi, Gerald. Hello. Glad to be here and Louise Jimenez, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the International Relations Major at UMass Boston. Hi, Louise.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: All three are members of the Mass Politics Profs blog. Well, let's jump right in with uh, our state auditor, Massachusetts State Auditor, Diana DiZoglio, who, during her campaign, said she was going to audit the House and Senate. She wants to ferret out some of the secrecy, some of the behind-the-scenes, behind-the-wall deals that have been made. Um, she was a former me- member uh, of the House, so she's uh, recognizing uh, some of uh, that which she is pushing against right now. Uh, in her new role, the Democrats, who, as everyone knows, in, are in charge of the House, said, uh, no, you don't have the authority to do that, and anyway, it would violate separation of powers required by the Constitution. So she took her appeal to Andrea Campbell, who is the Attorney General, uh, to get the okay. And Andrea Campbell, U.S. Uh, uh, Massachusetts Attorney General, gave her the okay. So now she's moving forward uh, to do a couple of things. First of all, make the case uh, to the public about why it is necessary to perform these audits and why uh, she wants to and make her campaign promise real. Um, In doing so, she's come up with a clever way to get the attention of the public with a song that she both wrote and recorded. Here's a little bit.
3: Some people think that holding power
1: makes them strong. But it's in our neighborhoods
3: to which that power should be
0: a chance to change some of the crazy ways people have been oppressed
1: so we can't miss this moment we won't miss this chance gonna give
0: it our Have it.
1: Um, I'm going to start with you, <laughs> Gerald. Um, I think a lot of people are, you know, puzzling around what exactly uh, the point of auditing the House and the Senate is. I've explained it a little bit, but you talk about the
3: importance of that. Sure, sure. Well, uh, first, let me just clarify the, um, the attorney general, what the attorney general actually okayed was a, uh, a ballot question. Right. The wording of essentially a, a mm-hmm. ballot question right so that uh, obviously the uh, the auditor hopes that isn't necessary she's pursuing in court uh she already believes she has the statutory authority to do an audit on the on the legislature which of course she does in the sense that she can do a financial audit uh, uh, the last one that she claims was ever done comprehensively was in 1922 i'm probably one of the very few people who went back and looked at that it's Yes, it's comprehensive, but it's entirely a financial audit, and it's about the financial accounts of the legislature. Uh, so the question of whether she can do the kind of audit that she campaigned on is an open question. And the and and I would say that the her case is not particularly strong. Uh, she's she's she sees her role, and that she has a right to see her role as she sees fit in a sense, but she sees her role as sort of the chief accountability and transparency officer. That might even be, you know, a quote from her website. And while obviously she is a chief accountability officer, it's very important to note that the auditor is a chief financial accountability officer. So the, 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 the tricky part of what she's trying to do is she's She's trying to uh, slightly just slightly expand the notion of uh, accountability. She's she uses the term transparency, that is not a statutory term. Uh, so it's it's an I don't want to come down on her and say she's got this wrong, but but it's definitely a, a very debatable question. and the 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 legislative leader's opposition to her isn't quite as obnoxious and uh, ill conceived as she might like us to believe.
1: Thank you so much for clarifying that she uh, got the permission to go forward with a ballot question. Um, Part of that work involves getting 75,000 signatures so that the ballot question would actually go on the ballot. So that's part of her pushing to make people understand what she's doing. And the song is a part of that. Okay, Um, Erin.
0: I can't with the song. Um <laughs> that is not the most important issue. Like we you know, she has a good voice, but uh you know, I don't embarrass well and I, you know, you can't on radio see my face red, but that song is cringy. Um mm-hmm. uh, the issue however uh, uh you know i think this is uh, points to the difference between being politically right and structurally right politically this is 100% a winning issue for her um you know saying the legislature makes you comply with all audits but that they they don't think they're under the rule of law right they think they're exempt they think they're different than you so politically saying our legislature, especially when a lot of people think elected officials and institutions are wasteful with money, et cetera, the idea of having an independent audit of the legislature is a politically popular. It's a winning issue. Now, to Gerald's point, structurally, does she have the power to do it? That's more of an open question. Uh, you know this we do have legislative supremacy right in, in Massachusetts. but um, I think she's being a smart politician regardless of whether she wins on her ability to do this audit. And I think she is hundred percent committed. I don't think she's doing this just for attention. I think she really believes that her role is to audit this legislature amongst uh, other state uh,
2: institutions. Louise. I agree with Aaron completely, but cringe sells. So let me just. Point that out. Um, and but I, I, as far as the bigger issue, the more important issue, um, I agree about. It's very important to note the structurally and politically uh, differences, uh, structural and political differences. But on the other hand, I think it's very salubrious because um, in a state where you might have dominant a dominant party, the, the Democratic Party or a single party, even at times, it's it's a good thing that you have even more separation of powers in a sense uh where someone can keep uh transparency and accountability to keep exactly what aaron was talking about the confidence of the population at large that people that politicians don't stray too far from that i think that's a that's a great thing and so whether or not she wins regardless i think we should having be having that debate uh which i think is good
1: all right well moving on uh the boston city council had its elections and two of its uh, now former members who had uh, quite a bit of controversy surrounding them for various issues uh, were voted out. Um, and, you know, this in an election where, sadly, the numbers are never as high as they should be for uh, turnout. But, in fact, uh, the voters did make a, uh, very much their, their wishes known. Um, they have put in place now for the final some new faces. And uh, in, in, in the opinion of some, we're back to, you know, uh, new and older Boston, uh, older and new Boston kind of situations still uh, continuing, and um, these new people will continue in that mode. So I'd love to get your responses to both uh, the bouncing out of two uh, former city councilors and what you think about those who are standing uh, for the general election in November and, and what it all means. I'll start with you, Aaron.
0: Sure. Uh, And on the bouncing out, surprise. Uh, You know, I was surprised. Incumbency advantage is huge. Yes, both counselors had significant scandals, though different ones, uh, surrounding them. But I expected them to at least get through to the general election, Uh, and they didn't. So their incumbency advantages, voters of Boston said, your scandals are too much, and keep in mind, city councillors can really like pull through with constituency service. They can uh, perform, um, you know, help with trash collection and small but important municipal politics issues that helps their constituents. And neither counselor was rewarded for either some of that constituent service. So it's a big deal when two councillors are ousted given uh, incumbency advantage. In terms of the individuals who, you know, like it's Pepin and Ruiz in uh, Arroyo's now former or soon to be former district. Yeah, I think a new Boston, old Boston sets up there. Pepin um, uh, or Pepin, Pepin uh, uh, is uh, uh, affiliated with uh, Michelle Wu. Ruiz is understood as uh, worked for Marty Walsh. So there is a new Boston, old Boston there. But uh, maybe a little bit less so in Kendra Lara's former district. Uh, but I think it's good news in the sense that you know when I moved to Boston, there were no can well there was one candidate of color regularly um, for city council. And what this says to me is embattled candidates uh, can get ousted because there is a group of other quality candidates that voters can choose from. So uh, the good news of this, there was an embarrassment of riches for voters in Boston, and they responded with um, counselors that could still perhaps hold their ideological positions that they liked, but they didn't have to deal with the scandal. And that's because there are a lot of quality candidates that wanted to get onto city council.
1: Uh, do you agree, Louise?
2: Yeah, yeah, very much so. It, and I wanna note exactly what Aaron said. I wanna really underline that because it's very, very difficult to oust an incumbent at, th- at this early this early and so the fact that two of them got ousted tells you i think a couple of things one exactly what aaron was talking about which is people were not afraid uh of voting for someone else because they thought you know like the identity politics or the maybe the ideological politics they could just change for someone else um but the other thing is i think i do think uh, the press has been so bad generally Uh, about the city council and and all kind, not just not just the scandals that uh, Aaron pointed out, especially for Arroyo, um, but also the dysfunctionality. And uh, seemingly these two uh, incumbents, uh, at least from the I think from the perception of the voters, were a major part of that. So I think for that reason, uh, it I think it explains exactly what happened. I think it's um, uh, it's still surprising, but I think you can understand it in those terms.
3: And Gerald, I know it's far from where you are, but uh, I will, I will, uh, you know, as the Western mass politics prof, I will uh, assume the role of uh, of Mo Cunningham and, and talk about the super PAC money uh, that (laughs) was uh, used to try to get rid of these incumbents. And it was super PAC money from, uh, from sort of, if you will, uh, ideological sources across the spectrum. And so uh, the incumbency advantage that, uh, that Aaron talked about Uh, It was surprising, but maybe less surprising because of the sort of increased willingness to uh, inject super PAC level funds and funding and and organizing into a local race. If you're just tuning in,
1: this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three members of the Mass Politics Profs blog. Gerald Duquette, professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University, Aaron O'Brien, associate professor of political science at UMass Boston, and Louise Jimenez, also an associate professor of political science at UMass Boston. We're discussing politics news in Massachusetts and nationwide. So outside of uh, Boston City Council results, um, there were some interesting results across Massachusetts, Um, notably an appreciable increase in the numbers of Asian-Americans elected to office. Um, For example, in areas like Quincy, um, which uh, boasts a large Chinese Massachusetts population, Nina Liang was re-elected. Um, she was the first elected in that area, which seems interesting. Um, and um, so, this is a this is something to be noted. Um, an, another big shift in uh, Massachusetts politics. I'll start with you, Louise. What say you?
2: You know, every time I come on your program, there's another sign of a new group of people, or or the usual group of people gaining a little bit more power. Uh, I mean the the minorities or people that haven't been represented previously. I think that's a great sign. If you looked at it uh, over time, uh, this is you know, small increments uh, going forward. And as we've said before, many times in this program, I think overall that's a good thing for not just for Massachusetts, not just for people, those people that are now being represented, but the state as a whole, because of diversity, as Aaron likes to point out many, many times, and has pointed out many times. Mm-hmm generally brings uh, different kinds of policies uh which improve um the state as a whole uh so yeah I, I, I usually welcome these news uh generally but especially with Asian Americans who uh we just did we're doing a, a book right now on Asian Americans uh, in New England and historically it has been uh just pitiful that they, they have done very badly but in Massachusetts one of the few states in New England where they're they're starting to gain traction which I like I said is it's a, a good thing
0: all righty, um, and Aaron. You know my colleagues are smart. Um, I, I would say that you know, as Louise pointed out, it's always a good thing when the elected officials start to look like the individuals they represent. It feels good, but it mm-hmm. has substantive policy outcomes. It's because, as Louise said, they legislate differently. Um, they uh, put issues on the agenda that others before them may have voted the same way, but they don't prioritize. Um, but uh, I'm going to be like the Debbie Downer at the end here. Mm -hmm. Um, While these gains are extraordinary and important, it's still the case that Asian Americans in Massachusetts are 7.5% of the population and only 3% of um, state elected officials. So there's a lot of work to do, um, but we should celebrate the gains that have happened. And
1: I just like to point out that um, maybe it seems uh even more important, coming off a few years of heightened awareness of uh, the anti-Asian um, attacks. Uh, so That's a really good point. Yeah, I just, so that seems to be interesting. Okay, let's move on to a, um, a situation that's only going to get more and more attention, and that is uh, the increasing number of migrants that are coming to Massachusetts that are already here and how we will... Um, deal with them, how we will uh, work to include them in the um, community at this point. Um, Governor Maura Healy has now really, it seems to me, stepped up uh, her request for help from the federal government. Um, this past week she was talking about the record numbers and how this is really um, something that Massachusetts cannot do alone. Here she is.
0: But I want to be really clear, this is a federal problem. And we need more federal help to solve it. We need two things. We need expedited work permits. We also need federal dollars. At the end of the day, it's not sustainable. And that is why I've been asking and begging for the Biden administration to act for a long time right now.
1: All right, Gerald. Um, we're seeing across the country, uh, particularly New York's mayor, but in other places. Uh, so Massachusetts is, a, is another voice. But as, as we can hear in uh, Governor Healy's voice,
3: um she's uh very concerned it's one of these problems that straddles the sort of practical administrative and the ideologically explosive right it's it's a it's a culture war bomb on the one hand but the reason why you're hearing democratic executives talking about it in these terms is because it's also a very real very practical problem of administration it is a, it, the, how to actually facilitate the the you know the eats eating sleeping and you know uh housing of these people while they wait or what have you it's a, it's it's, the, it's extremely basic right so it's not the kind of problem that you can just couch and and uh you know, sort of Posture on. You've actually got to talk about how we're going to fix it because you have these people living in conditions. The the debate, of course, what it ends up doing is causing all kinds of NIMBY debates. And now, way out here, where. you know in the west we have people at uh, westfield state university for example they're fighting about whether or not they're going to use one of the dorms at westfield state to house uh, to house uh, migrants uh, it, so in- interestingly it's a it's a big problem it causes a very big practical problem which produces b- a bunch of regional and local uh, fights that tend to be nimby versus, uh, you know, uh, we've got to somehow have compassion and solve this problem. So, you know, uh, it's a it's a problem that has to be solved. It's not a problem you can just sort of posture on.
1: But, Luis, no one wants to take any action. The people that have to take the action are in Congress. This conversation has been going on and going on and going on. And any attempts to come up with even any kind of compromise situation uh, seem not to go anywhere
2: that's right okay so a couple of things for your for your listeners so part of the reason why this is happening exactly what the governor said it's a federal problem the main reason being that we haven't changed immigration law since 1990. this has been very restrictive and therefore legal pathways are almost non-existent uh, the one legal pathway that's left is asylum which is what you're seeing and people then are coming through those through those channels but that is creates other problems about having to wait and all of these things that uh, Gerald just mentioned. But I bring the good news. The Biden administration announced that they would actually have TPS. TPS is Temporary Protective Status for a number of, of people that would be eligible, most of whom are Venezuelans. Uh, I don't know exactly, they didn't have all the details because, um, I mean, they didn't specify whether some of those people would also be Haitians, which are the one of the larger groups in Massachusetts. But it should. It should uh, ameliorate, uh, to some extent, um, the problem, uh, because then you know the, the biggest problem uh, is that you, while you're dealing with this group of people, then new, more people come and more people come, right? So if this is is down with TPS and um, employment authorization, which the Biden administration granted, um, that should that should take uh, some of the heat away. So so exactly what uh, the governor wanted happened. The other thing, however, is that just as I said, this is a temporary measure. You are allowing this, you are having work permits and you are allowing temporary protective status, but that means that it has to be renewed at some point. And it's not clear uh, exactly when because they didn't give all the details, but it could mean that you know two years from now or three years from now or whenever, uh, especially if Trump becomes president again, this probably would change. So this is not something that can, I mean, this is just sort of we're just kind of solving this problem at the very minimum level. That's what Biden can do. But this cannot be solved until Congress does something.
1: But let me just uh, pick up a piece of what you said. TPS allows for work permits. Uh,
2: Not on its own. Okay. Uh, it's a combination of it's called EAD. That's the employment authorization. And that that with TPS, in combination the people can work but this is only this is not for every single person this is for eligible people and i don't know the exact details of that because they didn't specify or at least what i read from the that they announced they didn't specify every who would all be eligible okay all right aaron
0: you know uh, this is where the rubber meets the road uh you know massachusetts understands itself we understand ourselves as this liberal hotbed um a place of uh, welcome uh, uh, progressivism and now, and so a lot of individuals in Massachusetts have taken a, you know, a very a stance that, you know, Texas and Florida, they're being so inhumane, et cetera, with uh, undocumented migrants and perhaps my uh, documented migrants. And here all of a sudden now we're facing, Massachusetts is facing a challenge of a significant influx of individuals who need to be housed. Uh, we have a right to shelter law. And, you know, state budgets are tight or city budgets are tight. And you know, thus far, I think Massachusetts has responded quite admirably. Yes, there have been a few protests and things like that, but compared to other states, like it looks like our reputation's holding. However, over time, as more individuals come, and like Gerald mentioned, you know, the the what the debate in Westfield state should the dorm use dorm be used or not, that's gonna happen, and it is happening. Uh, across the state. So uh, to the original point, this is why the federal government and the legislature needs to do something. There needs to be a significant fix because this patchwork isn't working, but um, the problem has come in a more concentrated manner to Massachusetts. I think thus far, as I said, we're performing pretty admirably, but that doesn't mean that will stick as budgets become tighter. Hmm. So I think this is gonna be an ongoing uh, issue. Uh, And it's one that Massachusetts can't project, you know, scorn onto other states as quickly now because they're dealing with it. And, um, you know, I hope we try to continue to do so in a humane manner.
1: All right. Well, let me change the subject yet again. Um, Here at home, and I'm considering home in New England, um, some really interesting cultural and political changes up in New Hampshire Um, We've already talked on this program about the messiness around the New Hampshire primary for Democrats. Um, That's because uh, President Biden worked to try to get the first primary not in New Hampshire, but in South Carolina for a variety of reasons. But now we're observing that a number of the Republican presidential hopefuls are really bypassing uh, New Hampshire. Uh, What's y'all's response? And do you think This will change. I just want one note. um, RFK uh, has made a point that he is not uh, rushing to Iowa, that New Hampshire is going and he's running on the Democratic side, of course, that uh, New Hampshire is going to be the place where he uh, puts his stake in the ground. So curious. Um, I'll start with you, uh, Gerald.
3: Yeah, it, well, it is curious. But of course, the, the, when you look at the present uh, uh, field for the Republican nomination and the posture that they're all taking towards a twice impeached, now 91 indictments against him fellow who seems to be in, in charge of the race, who doesn't even have to go to the debates, then when you think of it in that context, it it's not it's even harder to explain, but it's certainly not surprising. It's it's a it could be simply a tactical decision. Why go to New England if you don't have to? I mean, obviously the region is less hospitable than Iowa. Maybe it's even a logistically easier deal because you're going to go other places out from Iowa. Uh, so there's really it, it, there's not there's nothing there's no red flag waving in my mind in terms of why this would be New Hampshire would be a place that these folks didn't really want to go unless. You know, unless the there are politicians in New Republican politicians in New Hampshire that are kind of asking that maybe they not go, which I don't think that's happening.
0: Hmm. All right. Um, Aaron. Um, I got to take a swipe at JFK Jr. <laughs> 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 JFK, sorry, RFK, RFK, big difference. Um, yeah. uh, big difference. Uh, first, you know, when he announced his presidential bid, he flew from California to Boston. Right. And now when he's not spending a lot of he's flying over Iowa from California to New Hampshire, because he's betting, I think, incorrectly that the Kennedy name is going to give him um, leverage in the Democratic primary. Uh, uh, You know, um, (laughs) ask uh, ask his nephew how that worked out (laughs) in the Senate uh and markey being our senator so that 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 one i can't help but notice and i think he's misplaying he i think he thinks there's a love in new england for him um that isn't going to be borne out on to the other issue of new hampshire uh you know there's this is illustrative of the tension in the republican party new hampshire is a purple state it's uh purple states are what uh the republicans and the democrats need to um capture if they are to win in 2024. And so uh, arguably the old logic is if you would do well in a primary New Hampshire, then you're more likely to be elected because it's a purple state. Um, however, in this general election, um, they're not coming here. And they're not coming here also in part because it's more expensive to run in New Hampshire than it is in Iowa. Excellent. So I think it's a bit of, uh, it's definitely a bit of a mistake in terms of trying to capture 2024, but Republicans know to beat Trump, they're betting down on the ideas. You have, have to out-Trump him or out-conservative him, and you're more likely to be able to do that in Iowa.
1: Okay, Louise,
2: uh, Let me point out a couple of things about uh, the future of the New Hampshire primary and and take in consideration of what people just said so in terms of there has been for for a while now um, a pressure to move both Iowa and New Hampshire from the beginning of the calendar for all kinds of reasons as you mentioned diversity uh just the kinds of states that we're talking about etc but this particular election I'm not so sure that it tells us much about the future of New Hampshire as a primary state because of what um, Gerald mentioned about the the, in the Trump uh, side or the Republican side, which Trump dominates almost completely. And so they it is unclear, honestly, how much they would get from coming to New Hampshire uh, because, as uh, Aaron pointed out, is more of a purple state. Um, And well, and in general, honestly, because Trump just seems to be dominating by like 40 points or something like that. Mm -hmm. And on the Democratic side, because Biden is making an effort to have South Carolina go first. But because he's an incumbent president, uh, if if New Hampshire does indeed become a very minor uh, thing within the calendar, it might not be the case in 2028 um, because the dynamics could be completely different. So I don't know that even though there's pressures to change it, I'm not sure that going forward this is going to change too much. It really depends what happens, um, you know, in 2024, whether Biden gets reelected or whether um, a Republican or Trump comes back.
1: Coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. Will a new dress code in the Senate impact more than attitudes toward clothing? And will the UAW strike of three automakers become a campaign issue? This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our full hour discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs. Aaron O'Brien and Luis Jimenez of UMass Boston and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. Let's pick up right where we left off. Well, um, One of our former Massachusetts citizens who went on to greater glory elsewhere, (laughs) uh, Senator Mitt Romney, caused quite a stir this week uh, by announcing that he would not run for re-election. Let's take a listen.
2: I considered uh, my age and the fact that at the end of a second term, I would be in my mid-80s. And I think it's time for guys like me to get out of the way and have people in the next generation step forward.
1: Well, that of course stirred a lot of uh, public debate across the country, and of course re-energized uh, the uh, concerns about President Biden's age. Less so about uh, former President Trump's
3: age, even though they're only three years apart. So let's have at it, Gerald. Um, well, I mean, it, I mean, <laughs> I, with all due respect to our former governor, I don't, I take him at his word that that was a factor, but I, I would, I would. I'm pretty comfortable saying that the real the reality is like every other non-Trumpian Republican, he's uh, jumping the ship uh, before it goes down on its own. He, he's he's just another example. His his own um, you know uh, comments, uh, the book that's coming out. It's clear that he doesn't do politics in the way that the Trump-dominated Republican Party does politics, and he's just one of many Republicans who will leave the stage. Uh, because that's not the how they play the game. So uh, so again, the age question isn't r- a real issue in the election anyway. I don't consider it a real issue. And so his using it, I think, is a polite way not to have to say,, you know, the most harsh things uh, in the most public way all right. Um what do you what say you, Louise?
2: I mean, I, I can't imagine that it would be too much fun being Mitt Romney <laughs> the Senate right now, um, <laughs> But uh, independent of that, I mean, I, there is an issue about age um, because, its I mean, people talk about Biden, but it's not just Biden. I mean, it's the entire elite. Uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, we've had senators, the uh, Senator for California uh, and so on. People people just stay way too long and we don't have many young people. Uh, right now. I'm not sure who the youngest person in Congress is, but we definitely don't have enough young people. Um, So there is an issue about age, generally speaking. I don't want to say that any particular individual uh, shouldn't be, you know, like they should retire. Um, But the, the question we should be talking about is why is it that people stay in Congress that long? Why is it that people stay in politics that long? And a big reason why is has to do with the way that we're doing politics these days and the power of incumbency, the power of money, and so on. Obviously, if you're older and you've been in politics longer, it's just easier to get reelected. And so, if people really want to do something about the age issue, age issue beyond what some people hope for, like term limits, which I don't think are going to happen, mm-hmm. um, the other issue I think is more about the way we actually do politics. Aaron you know
1: it's not ju- the focus has not just been on uh Biden and Trump it's also been on Mitch McConnell and then also Diane Feinstein and then you know we can go on and on and on, and what I think is ironic to some degree. So, uh, you all who are the political scientists know better than me that the age thing allowed him to cover for something else because he's about the youngest looking seventy six year old I've seen in a while. Yes, so, yes, yes. so age. It seems it's like really that's why you're okay. But anyway, Aaron, you were weigh in, please. It
0: helps to be a you know multi millionaire to look good, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, Listen, uh, you know, structurally, as we said, uh, it is a problem that, uh, you know, the Senate in particular uh, skews so high individually. Any of those individuals might be great senators, but from the the perspective of representativeness and reflecting the population, our population um, isn't, you know, 40% octogenarians. Um, So that is just a structural representation problem that um, we have an unrepresentative Senate in many ways and including how high it skews on age. I do think um, the age issue is a huge one for Joe Biden. Uh, Callie, as you pointed out, it's unfair that um, Trump being but three years younger and arguably has said way more wild things uh, isn't um, typified, or this issue hasn't hung on him to the same way. But I think Democrats are making a huge mistake in not taking this seriously. Voters are thinking about it. There's been a two and a half year campaign going after Joe Biden uh, on the right, uh, typifying him as feeble, unwell, not just absent-minded, genuinely unwell. And while many, including myself, might find that factually inaccurate, voters are thinking it. And and I think if we rerun election 2020 expecting the same outcome when a giant intervening variable of two and a half years going after the guy as um, as unwell, senile, uh, uh, Democrats, I think, are making a huge mistake. As to Mitt Romney, um, Mm. you know, Listen, I never, this is Aaron, not Dr. O'Brien. I never thought I would have a thing for Mitt Romney. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'll be more serious again, because like, Mitt Romney has pointed out, um, you know, he has been a pro-democracy Republican. And part of the reason he's been able to do that in the Vanity Fair piece that's an advance on his book, he has security forces. He's hired private security Mm. to the tune of $5,000 a day. Right. Um, it's the death
3: threats, not the age. Yes. Yeah. Right.
0: And so he writes uh, uh, about uh, Republican senators who wanted to vote differently on impeachment, but were convinced not to do so because of threats to their family. Mm-hmm. That's the story here. So I think Mitt Romney, Romney doing this sort of like they're both too old. Come on. Yeah. Come on, Mick. And say it's not that they're both too old. It's that one of them is making it unsafe for you and other senators to legislate. So I think he's falling into a real false equivalency.
2: I also want to point out in terms of doing something right. The obvious thing is uh, Biden is not getting younger. And so there's a debate about Biden stepping down and Biden, you know, just letting uh, someone else take the helm. If that happened, I think that would be a far more serious mistake because even though they run the risk of course with Biden I think that if you actually had an open primary right now it would be a disaster for the Democratic Party because then you'd have this internal division and the obvious problem that you have is Harris would be presumably the the front runner at the beginning I suppose to some extent but in fact i think she probably would not be able to win the primary so if she lost and you know the first what would that say the first black woman uh vice presidential would lose the primary to who probably a white person uh the governor of michigan or someone else i think this would create this would open a can of worms so large that actually would be far worse for the democratic party
1: all right well here's something that may keep the age conversation going in a different way and that is That both campaigns, but uh, particularly the Biden campaign, are pushing to attract younger voters. So in the doing of that, I have to assume that the age question remains vibrant in some way. What what say you, Erin?
0: You know. I was thinking of a terrible metaphor that but, you know, my grandparents always gave me great gifts at Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, young voters are looking for more of a gift from Biden, Harris or, or, you know, Trump and whoever he might run with. Listen, uh, you know, uh, our colleagues at Tufts uh, uh, researched this uh, in real detail. And, you know, they found that voters from 18 to 29 in 2020, they voted 50 percent voted in the presidential election. And that was up 11 points from 2016. And every black young people, Asian young people, Latinx young people, and white uh, white young people majorities voted for Biden. Um, You know, slimmer majorities, uh, depending for uh, whites. But that's a and then two to one they voted for Biden. So if young people don't feel like they're getting to borrow the metaphor from earlier, good Christmas presents, i.e., good public policy outcomes from Biden Harris. Um, they're not going to go for Donald Trump, but they're not going to turn out. So, right. yes, the oldest president ever needs young people to turn out at least at the same force as they do in 2020. And I don't see that happening because fairly or unfairly, young voters don't perceive that Biden Harris has done a tremendous amount for them, even though they yeah, the administration would counter. We're working on student loans, look at uh, the environmental work we've done. Uh, but they're just not as excited. I mean, that's why, you know, Harris is out on college campuses, et cetera. But getting young people to turn out, I think, is going to be an uphill battle.
1: Well, and I was going to ask, even even though they are continuing to push on the student loans and some people, as it's, it's, it's quiet as it's kept, did get student loan relief, not the general, uh, as many people as as was originally thought, but he made it possible. He went right back in there and uh, Mm -hmm. offered up another plan. And so those people got it. So there is evidence of that. And also uh, there's a reason that Harris is out talking about abortion and reproductive justice. I mean, that's right in the wheelhouse, as we saw in the earlier uh, campaigns of a lot of young people. So, even with that, Aaron, it doesn't. Uh, you don't think they'll turn out in good numbers?
0: I'm a huge. I hate it when people get down, and none of us have on, you know, gen- and millennials and stuff like that. But I think, you know, uh, you made really good points, Callie, And I heard of whatever. Okay. In my <laughs> okay.
3: <laughs> well, right. I mean, I think I think the the thing is that they're not going to give the guy a saxophone. His sunglasses aren't enough. Right. And he can't pull off the great Reagan line at the debate against Mondale, where he said he wasn't going. <laughs> to make the youth an inexperience of his opponent an issue <laughs> yeah that's right that's so true. they're going to go they're, what they're going to have to do to some extent in the abortion issues is part of this is use fear mm-hmm. and they're going to fear monger but of course the thing is this is a time when the things that they're what we say fear mongering it's it's real right yeah <laughs> so they've got real uh you know uh fear to it to uh it's it's not like when we say fear-mongering, we think of it as a tactic that is somehow dishonest. Well, in this election, it is not fear-mongering to, to tell young people that the country that they expect to have, they're not going to have if they don't understand what's going on. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of potential for genuine uh fear to motivate uh you know young people now i don't know that they are going to come through in the numbers that uh, the democrats would would uh, absolutely love but i i uh, i think that there's probably more potential to scare them to the polls than uh, than it seems at the moment and
2: where are you sitting on this louise uh, well i do think that it's going to be an uphill battle because and i think in large part because their communication has been faulty now this is mm-hmm. to some extent because the unfairness of the media of you know fox news and right-wing media and even general uh, you know cnn or whatever uh play biden i think in a in a fairly unfair way because he has done a lot and people don't believe he has done a lot like the economy is doing pretty well the inflation is going down those sorts of things um but i do think he has a has a good story to tell biden does you know he might he might not be uncle bernie where he looks even though he's Ah. and he's kind of cool and whatever and people and and the kids like him uh i i do think he has genuine accomplishments that he can tell it's just a way of packaging those not just about abort i mean i mean not just about abortion in the fear sense that gerald was talking about but the other things you mentioned but also about climate change Mm -hmm. he did you know the 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 bill that he passed is massive massive, he's changing uh, that entire industry. And and we know young people really care about that. I think I believe it's like in the top three issues. Um, Unfortunately, I think the biggest problem for young people is probably housing. Mm.
1: And housing Mm -hmm. is not
2: something that Biden can do much about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I that probably more than anything is what's going to hurt him. But if you know, I, I still think he could package these other way these other things in a way that might make him. Well, not look as old. Let's put okay. it
1: that way. Okay, got it. All right. Now, a couple of things I want to uh, bring to you all to get your response to um, how they're playing out politically. First of all, as we're speaking, the um, the strike by the auto workers, the three auto workers are um, three auto companies rather are um, is ongoing, and uh, predicted that they would expand it if the uh, companies did not come back closer to what they are asking for, and they've been standing uh, pretty firm. Um, First, let's take a listen to the UAW president. That's the union president, Sean Fain, talking about the stakes of their strike.
3: This is our generation's answer to the movement that built our union, the sit-down strikes of 1937. Then as now, we face massive inequality across our society. Then as now... Our industry is rapidly changing and workers are being left behind. Then as now, our labor movement is redefining itself.
1: So how important an issue is this? And let me uh, also add this. Uh, President Biden's been on the uh, out on the uh, trail, if, if the campaign trail and, and in other places speaking about his long support of unions and um, and what what this means and, of course, has said he's willing to send some of his administrative folks to Detroit to help negotiate. They they rejected that, but he said they're on standby. And uh, former President Trump, who I'll remind everybody, is still leading uh, in the numbers on the primary side for the Republicans, said he's skipping the next Republican debate so that he can go to speak to current and former auto workers who are union members. So this seems to be a very important
3: political issue in this moment? Well, it certainly is a an important issue in terms of substance. And the union's uh, strategy is a very big picture strategy. And I'm impressed that the big picture long-term strategy has been matched nicely with a, a, a tactic of uh, of sort of, um, you know, escalating strikes, not just a big strike, but they're, they're sort of strikes in particular plants. And that that obviously you know makes it uh easier for them to sustain the strike fund at the same time it makes it less predictable for the for the factory so i mean there's a lot of smart um you know tactical and strategic things going on by the unions in terms of the political impact the first the first thing that comes to mind is well uh, the percentage of the private sector workforce that's unionized 6% uh, but that doesn't mean that the media won't uh, see this as a big story, and that it won't have an impact on you know the the election writ large. Because obviously Trump believes it's important that he get in there and make this a culture war issue somehow, make this somehow uh, you know sort of the those commie uh, or socialist union. Uh, thugs are trying to take the uh, work from good, hardworking Americans, right? So obviously, he'll make it a culture war issue, and uh, and 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 Biden will try to make it a, a, a classic economic populist one. Well, I want to point out he is speaking. He's he, allegedly he's going to speak to union members,
1: uh, auto who are auto workers. Louise.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with um, Gerald. I think this could be a serious problem for for the Biden administration if this doesn't get solved because as i was just mentioning earlier to some extent um biden even though he has been doing well economically he's painted as the opposite and people there's a lot of people who've seen public uh, opinion data who don't think the economy is doing better who don't think inflation is going down and so forth and if this continues this is just going to be another data point that shows people that or the thing that people think shows um that biden is failing and you know beyond it's a specific economic Disruptions, which, as Gerald pointed out, might not be necessarily massive. There's going to be a lot of attention paid to this. So I am sure that both sides, and especially the White House, is very aware of this and um, want to solve this as soon as possible. But the union is being very strategic, as Gerald pointed out, and their incentives might not align with the White House. And so they, you know, this could go on. And so we don't know how this is going to turn out. And Aaron,
0: you know, I'm from Ohio, as I often bring up here.
3: <laughs>
0: I'm an Ohio girl and Dayton, Ohio. Um, I know what it's like when the plants leave. You know, growing up, the uh, the family behind us, uh, he was a third shift janitor at GM and she was a nurse and could buy, you know, a comfortably middle class house. Uh, uh, we all know what happened to the auto companies and the way in which they, um, the unions gave back so many benefits When foreign foreign competition came in, and quite frankly, the cars weren't as good. The American cars weren't as good uh, anymore. But keep in mind, we... Everybody listening, we bailed out the auto companies Mm -hmm. um, when President Obama was in, and now they are quite profitable um, and they're making good vehicles. So the the union's demands uh, logically make a lot of sense. We gave back when you were struggling, we gave back to you, and now you're doing quite well. We deserve to share in that profit. That is a populist argument and a popular argument, which, you know, they're kind of the same, right?
3: Right, right. right. Um,
0: And I'm thinking, how does this play in a state like Ohio? And that's where I think Donald Trump, Joe Biden come in. And I think of Sherrod Brown, who's uh, the Senator in Ohio, who has been um, defined as, he's defined himself um, for working people, working class issues. This has been his mantra since he was elected. Youngstown, Ohio, um, working class used to be a town that went solidly for Democrats. It went for Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, who's an anti-union guy, is trying to get involved in this conversation, and the AUW president and leadership said, don't come, we don't want you, right? Because you're dividing membership. Uh, so there, there, it's there's a lot of cross-cutting cleavages here right, right. that I, I think are coming through. The fact that the union doesn't want Trump, because even though a lot of the union members voted for Trump, but Trump mm-hmm. isn't for you know unionism itself. Mm-hmm. I actually think it could advantage a Sherrod Brown, and um, you know, uh, labor's had a, a heck of a summer. You know. Um, uh, with, yeah. with this yes. strike and that's the right. writer strike, and um, you know almost a Teamsters strike, so you know labor's pushing back, and I think that's pretty exciting, and it has the potential to reshape some Midwest politics.
1: All right to my favorite story of this conversation, the changing uh, dress code in the Senate. You might say the changing of the guard. Yeah, there you go. Very good, Gerald. Um, So Senator Chuck Schumer, who is the the majority leader of the Senate, um, formally established uh, a new dress code or as one of the articles said uh, did away with the old one so they members can now do a business casual approach now anybody who works in an office knows that has many interpretations <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so uh, John Fetterman from Philadelphia uh, from Pennsylvania has um, uh, he campaigned in a hoodie and shorts that's his whole look um, and he recently had gone back to that and so now He can go sort of beyond what I would refer to as business schedule to the hoodie and shorts. But other people apparently uh, are doing somewhere in between hoodie and shorts and a no coat and tie. And it's caused a great stir. So um, I'll start with you, (laughs) Louise. Is this more than about just the dress code?
2: I mean, with clothing, generally speaking, I think there's a lot of social anxiety that gets projected through that. Uh, over, the, if you look at history over the centuries, people talking about how people weren't, you know, weren't wearing suits before, uh, like at the turn of the 20th century, the 19th century, and then people that want people to look like they should be like in 20s or 30s or 40s. Um, so yes, there's always there's always anxiety about clothing. Personally, I think. I mean, this is an issue generally. I, I, I in terms of uh, policy, that's what the Congress is there for. Having any particular way that people dress is not going to make any difference whatsoever. And in the case of Fetterman specifically, politically, I think this helps him because, you know, that's what he that's how he campaigned. That's what people know him for. And the fact that Congress or that his opponents, Republicans, are making a big deal out of this, um, just sort of brings his profile higher and it's not going to take any votes from him. So I I think generally it's not as as an, a non issue that we're not going to be talking about for very long but it does undoubtedly cause a lot of people anxiety.
3: Okay, Gerald. Well, you know, it to to, to uh, Luis's point about Fetterman being benefited. Obviously, this is sort of a gift in terms of authenticity, right? These people want conformity and I want to be, you know, these, I was elected because I'm an authentic, you know, so I mean, politically, you know, a dress code in the Senate as an issue is to the great advantage of those, you know, rebelling against the establishment tie or whatever the case may be. Uh, I um I myself am uh, doing this interview by radio in my office and not, no one would mistake what I'm wearing for a business. <laughs> business <laughs> casual so and, and i actually have had co- uh, colleagues in other departments sort of uh, upset at me that i don't have a coat and tie on all the time so it's there is that culture it's uh, sort of an older generation i'm obviously very young as you know uh, <laughs> and, and so there's also that element of it right youth and uh, you yes. know it helps it helps politicians obviously all right final word aaron
0: you know, last week, I'm teaching intro to public policy is one of my classes uh, this semester, and I'm, I'm about to bore you very quickly. One of the theories is the social constructivism, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I try to make the point that public policy is that public part. It is a theater where our discontents and value conflicts play out. So if we do like a rationalist approach to public public policy, it makes no sense. None of us know these hundred senators. Um, And what they're wearing doesn't affect us that much. But when we get to this idea of the theater of it all and the way in which identity and values play out in public policy, as both my colleagues have pointed out, you know, um, changing of traditional norms, you know, loosening of workplace structures, working remote... All those things create a lot of anxiety amongst some people. Change is hard for some. So I think the dress code becomes a way of talking about all those other anxieties Mm
1: -hmm. with changing
0: work norms and, you know, uh, Gerald in his, um, you know, uh, T-shirt and shorts at home. (laughs) All those anxieties need a place to play out. And it's a lot easier to talk about the Senate, them, than talk about those large structural forces. So on the one side, it's absolutely absurd. On the other side, it's reflective of, you know, um, identities and value conflict in society. And Federman's already fundraising off of it, to Louise's point. He has (laughs) a sweatshirt I saw, you know, of all the things he's been called and, you know, buy this sweatshirt for $64 and I'm sure... (laughs) the vast majority of it goes to his campaign fund so he's laughing on the way to the um uh, campaign bank
1: even though Mike Huckabee says he looks like a junior gamer, but whatever, I'm sure that's on a quote on the on the uh, hoodie at this point. And
0: Mike Huckabee, like you know, uh, tell me more about how you stand with the Duggars. So uh, we want to go pop culture. I can go. <laughs>
1: and on that note, we're going to end this conversation. I thank you all for joining me. You're very welcome.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Erin O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at UMass Boston. Gerald Duquette is a professor of political science and director of the public policy and management program at Central Connecticut State University. And Luis Jimenez is an associate professor of political science and director of the international relations major at UMass Boston. All three are members of the Mass Politics Profs blog. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Ashley Sobroto. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Starting next week, Under the Radar's weekly encore moves to Wednesday night. So listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.